All right, if you guys would grab your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 15. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. But before we do that, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick oversweeping view of everything that we've gone through in Romans. Because all we're doing today is just digging a little bit deeper off of some of the concepts that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. Um, so everything that Fulton started teaching and then Pastor Mike and Danny over the last two weeks. So here we go. Quick Romans overview. Um, we're approaching the end of the chapter here, or sorry, the end of the letter here, and Paul's written this letter to the church in Rome, and he's taken us on this crazy journey through what's probably the most complete exhortations of gospel and how that plays out in our life, our interaction with it should look like. So he's laid out the whole truths, starting in chapters one through three, um, but what he, what he did, did here is he, he's shown that every single one of us is subject to and fallen the power of sin, that no one is righteous, not at all fall short of the glory of God. So not the Jew and not the Gentile. All of us fall subject to it. So we all stand condemned and deserving of wrath because of sin. And then he moves on. He gets into chapter 4. We find hope here because we hear this horrible bad news that we're all subject to be condemned to this, but yet he offers us a solution. There's an answer to our depravity that we might be made right with God. Uh, so what he identifies there is what's called justification, and that comes through Christ. So amen, that's the good news, right? Praise God. Moving on, Paul teaches us that not only does Jesus justify us, but he also sanctifies us. And that's a weird Christian word that we use a lot. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on in the message. But what that is, it's the renewing of our minds. It's this process that God is working on us and taking us through. So then we get into chapter 8 through chapter 11, and Paul is reiterating this point. And all he's doing is just confirming God's faithfulness to complete his work. And that means even to the nation of Israel today that God is not done. So he's confirming that and he's using all of these scriptural truths to back up his points. And then we get into chapter 12 where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what he's saying is because of everything that we've talked about, chapters 1 through chapter 2, because of all that Christ has done, this is now look like and how it should play out in your lives. So this is now the practical application. Um, and this is the latter section of the letter where we've been hanging out the past couple of weeks. It's going to be where we're at today. So Paul's going to be concluding this thought as he kind of laying. And what we've done here is uh, Paul has laid out how this should look, how the gospel should play out in our life in the community, how the gospel should play out in our life with relation to the government, how the gospel should play out in our life in response to those who treat us wrongly, and as Danny reviewed last week, how it plays out within the body of Christ, your relationships with one another, me to you, you to me. And so this, is, this has to play out. The gospel has to play out in our lives. That's why Paul is encouraging the church in Rome and why, why it can now apply to us here at North Shore Christian Fellowship today. Because it's not just applied in some areas of our lives. And this is something that takes time. You have to process through this. The gospel isn't just me. The gospel isn't just for Ohana group nights. It's not just for your own personal devotional time with the Lord. It should saturate every area of your life. And as we saw last week, that means sometimes we're going to have to make some adjustments. And this is challenging. Not good for us. So in context here, chapter 15, what are we talking about? The church in Rome, they've, they've entered the challenge of what was a culture clash. So we've had old Jews that had been converted to Christianity coming into the new covenant of Jesus, trying to follow the, the commands of Jesus. But what that meant for them was they've been following the Old Testament command for like a thousand years. 
And so now Jesus comes into the picture to all of the law and all of the commandment and changes that have to happen. So you can imagine that that would be a little bit difficult for these guys. Now on the other side of the house, we have the Jews and then we have the Gentiles. So these guys were coming out of worshiping idols, worshiping in temples, sacrificing meat to idols, doing all these, all kinds of liberties that you can imagine. And now bring them into the same worship of Jesus Christ where you're dealing with Jews and Gentiles. So there was conflict. There were some non-essential issues that they were having to deal with. So you can imagine the difficulty that that would bring up in regards to conscience. And those are the things that we talked about last week. So we're talking about secondary issues, non-essential to Christian doctrine, but they were causing divisions. And we called those gray areas last week. Things that different people are going to come to different conclusions on and land in different areas. And that's okay. If there's question freedom in Christ, there's a couple specific ways that we can go about uh, figuring this out. So we should ask ourselves, one, is this declared by Scripture? And this is a Second, can you participate in that freedom to the glory of God? Third, does it violate your conscience? Test, not the first. So you don't say, how do I feel about this? And then go back through the verse, through the uh, start with what does God say about it? So if it meets the criteria, then you're free in Christ with one other consideration, that you might be free in that area, but if a weaker brother is stumbled by that freedom, you're better off not participating in it so that we don't, as Paul wrote, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. To use an example from Danny last week, for the sake of Harry Potter, we don't destroy the work of God. So those gray areas, those personal conviction areas, not free to cause a brother or a sister to stumble. And so we as a church... We need to be wise in exercising discernment in this area. We have to think through this biblically. So Paul's going to push us out now into some deeper water. As we get into chapter 15, there's a, there's a chapter break here. Don't get confused by that because the exhortation continues, and he's going to conclude this thought. So our focus here this morning, just to give you some direction on where we're heading. Number one, first point, loving others can be hard, so how do we do it? Second point, Jesus is our example as always. Third, the importance of scripture. Fourth, the purpose of unity in the church. And then finally, is the God of hope. So if you would read with me chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, but it's up here on the screen if you need it. Here we go. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. 
and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness and that we can come and, and sit with you and be counseled by your word. And Father, I pray that you would open our ear to you this morning, Lord. We need your spirit to illuminate this truth. I pray that you not let us sit here today as just another Sunday morning and that you would challenge us and that you would make us into who you might be glorified in this church. God, I ask that you make us a little less comfortable in our complacencies. And I ask that you would confront us in some area of our life that you would want to make us more like yourself. Don't leave us the same way this morning, Lord. Please come, do what you want. We're here to hear from you, Lord, please. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so bear with the similarities of the context. And I was reading through this and I was like, man, Danny kind of taught what I wanted to teach. But when I'm thinking about this, like if there are things that are repeated in scripture, if there are, either one, it's really important and the Lord cares about it, or two, he knows that we're stubborn and hard-hearted in that area. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, listen up, knucklehead, let's pay attention. Always a balance in scripture. So last week, as Danny taught, there was a lot of prohibition, things that we should not do. And that's easy to see when we go through the Old Testament, do not this, thou shalt not do this, avoid this, don't do this, don't, 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 don't. And that's easy to see the first read through it. But why, why is that there? It's the same reason that your mom said, don't touch the hot pot on the stove. There's consequences for it. Don't do these things because it's harmful to you. We don't know the dangers behind all the commands of the don'ts, but God does, and so we trust him and we submit to that. He loves us, which is why he puts those warning commandments there. But scripture is amazing, though, and it's balanced because as many prohibition commands there are, there are equally as many prescription commands, things that you ought to do. And that's kind of where we're going to move in here today. So an example of that from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22 says that it's a sin if you see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and you ignore it. You're supposed to go after it and take it back to him and that you should do the same thing with anything that your brother has lost. So... Finders aren't keepers, biblically. So that $100 bill that was in the parking lot? No one? It wasn't mine. I'm just kidding. All right, here we go. We got to cover some ground here. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now reading that, Everyone in the room probably just thought, he's writing to me. I'm strong. Yeah, we who are strong. Who's strong? Raise your hand. Show yourselves. Perfect. Now, I had this funny conversation with a friend of mine um, a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about New Year's resolutions and how usually I fail at them. I'm like, okay, just make it 30 days, and then I can quit in February, and then we'll do it again next year. But not this time. And thanks to my... Uh, Ohana group, and thanks for the guys that were helping me be accountable in this area. I was able to make it past the 30 days and still staying on track with my, my hope and my desire to stay in shape. So I'm talking with my friend about this. We're having this conversation, and he goes, yeah, I've got two tests that I use to determine whether or not I'm in shape or not. I was like, cool, let's hear this. 
And the dude's like six foot 13 inches. He's like a monster. He's probably 250 pounds. He's just a giant. And the first one he goes, uh, can I dunk? That's my first one. And if I'm able to dunk, I know I'm in shape. Look at that. No way. I'm never going to. I'm not a basketballer. This dude is. He can jam. All right. For me, I probably need like the trampoline in front so that I can get up there. Or like the, the shallow end of the pool, and then we can jam. We're playing pool basketball now, but not this guy. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Maybe second test I've got a shot at. So he goes, second test is if I can push 400 pounds. So I'm thinking the frame of this structure, yeah, you probably need to be able to leg press 400 pounds so that you can jump up and dunk. And he kind of gives me one of those flat smiles. I'm talking about bench press 400 pounds for repetition. He's strong, me weak. That's what I get. I was like, all right, man, you got it. But my point is that strength is often gauged by the test. So in order to be considered strong by my friend's standards, I would need to meet his tests. So the test sets up the parameters. If I said that the strength test, you would be strong if you could come up here and pick up this microphone stand three times, and then you're strong, every single one of us would fit that bill. We would all be able to say, yes, I am strong, because the test sets the standard. And so Paul obviously is not talking about physical strength, but the concept translates. Not everyone is strong. Here he's already described the people that he's talking about in the previous chapters. Those who are strong in regards to conscience, to the things that they can eat, to the freedoms and the liberty, liberties that they have in Christ in regards to personal convictions. And those people are usually the ones that are mature in their relationship with the Lord. They've been seasoned. So he's talking to the strong. We can't all fit that description. This is hard. This calls for humility to examine ourselves. It's good to review chapter 12, verse 3 before moving on. Paul wrote, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of as assigned. So consider where you are and be honest with yourself as we're going through this. Humility is key because some of us are weak. And some of us are strong in certain areas, but weak in others. So what Paul is doing is he's challenging the strong that they have an obligation to bear with the failing. So if you're strong, the test is to see if you are willing to bear with the scruples or the infirmities, depending on what your version says. Put it on yourself to come up underneath and to support it or to carry it. Sustain and support or to bear what is burdensome. That sounds hard. I am not strong because my idea of bearing with the weak is to mutter under my breath and say, I'll just deal with it. All right, I'll suffer it. Yeah, sure. And I roll my eyes. That's not what he's saying. The strong should then bear with the ones who have a weak conscience, those particular days of worship, those personal conviction areas that we've been talking about, the secondary, non-essential, non-gospel-focused issues that so often divide Come alongside them with the intention to build them up, he says. Someone says, hey, be strong. Me, Hey, be strong. I'm falling on my face dunking, and then I'm getting crushed under that 400-pound bench press. That's what happens. Think about it. But what if instead he came alongside me and lifted that weight with me for days, weeks, months, years? Maybe I could meet the bench press test. But that's a process because he's supporting me through it. 
Possibly I can meet that test. Not get stronger now, do it. You're going to get crushed. But we're such a culture that demands immediate results. We want immediate gratification without having to do the work that is required. But that's not how God works. You see, in one sense, we are radically changed in an instant when we're saved. It's this miraculous change. You're born again. You're brought from death into life. You're brought from slavery of bondage and sin into freedom in Christ. And you're no longer bound by your sinful nature, but now you are under the new law in Christ, is what Paul writes in Galatians. But yet, we're still going to go through this process of sanctification. That's back to chapter 8, right? And the process is it's not complete until either Jesus returns or he calls us home. So we're going to go through a process of sanctification where you will be growing in grace in those areas that you're weaker in and the failings. But the strong need to seek out the opportunity to bear up underneath them. Verse 1, he continues, and not to please ourselves. So this is the one thing that most commonly holds me back from loving others, from pleasing others. It's the desire to put myself first. My preference, my convictions, me. What do I think about that? What do I want? By definition, that's love. I'll do it if there's something in it for me. What do I get out of this? And human love is always going to be conditional, and it's always going to be love. And this is the love that the world knows, right? The love of the carnal mind that is not set on God. Life gets hard, you can, you can just quit. If things get messy, just start over. If the marriage relationship is not meeting your expectations, just ditch it. Start over. You're fine. Just look out for number one. Take care of you. These are the worldly perspectives. And they'll say things like, just, you know, take care of that or get rid of that. Cut it off because it's just going to slow you down. That's not bearing with the weak. The world screams to take care of number one and put yourself first. Because in the world, that's true. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Nobody's got your back because all they're doing is caring about themselves and looking out for number one. But in the church, we're called to something entirely different. Jesus calls us to something much greater. He says in Luke chapter 6, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even the sinners do that. If you love those who do good to you, what benefit is that? Even sinners do that too. So conditional love is not the call of Christ that. It's clear. If you love and associate and you're patient with and you bear with the people that only love you back and have the same perspectives and, and convictions as you, what good is that to you? Jesus says even the world loves that way. But we're called to something greater, to unconditional love by the power of the about biblical and God's purpose for the church. If you're a member of the body of Christ and the idea of unity is much greater than that, it's often presented as this idea of a family but even better than that, I think, what we have in the picture of, of what Scripture gives us is the example of unity from the, from the body of Christ, right? Christ is the head. We're the body. Therefore, I am a part of you, and you are a part of me. So that changes the perspective that we have of each other. And that's how God designed it. And it's meant to look radically different than what we see from the world outside of Christ. I'm not talking about unity just for unity's sake. Right? Football teams have unity for unity's sake. They have a goal in mind. We're going to win. Uh, even the military or work groups, they've all got a goal set, and this is where we're headed. But the body is a much because it's not just a means to an end or some goal. Because you're living together. We depend on each other to live as if we're actually one body. 
wrote in chapter 12, verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So what about this? What about when the body... What about when the shoulder's out of sight or your eyes are clouded or your ears are muffled? What do we do then? Limping because your left leg hurts, your right leg is going to bear up underneath it and carry the left. And that's what we should be doing as the body, depending on and relying on the stronger parts to put what is out of joint back into place. So we need each other for this kind of love. Because we love one another as we love ourselves. That's the second part of the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And then he says, and the second is as the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. So if I really, truly care about you enough, I'm going to treat that weaker, that injured, whatever it is aspect, and I'm going to look at it and say, man, my body is not healthy. I need to pour myself out into this. I need to bear up under this weakness. The function of bearing up, that's, how, that's what we're talking about here. Verse 2 through 3, let us each please his neighbors for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. So what holding other people like this, the reason that I don't want to love or care or consider or get involved with pleasing others, is because it costs. It's, it's an engagement of me so that I can love that person, consider them in that way. Somewhere... Somehow, some way, love is going to cost because it's expensive. God so loved the world that he gave. That is the love that we're talking about. He loved you and I price for you and I when we were broken and lost and sinful and self-centered and egocentric. And he paid full price to redeem us to himself. It's not fair doesn't make sense to the world, but that's the love that we have in the God that we serve. And God sees you and he loves you the same way. He calls us out of our slavery to sin and death and he calls us into the newness of life. Another illustration of Jesus not pleasing himself from the Gospels. Remember this, after the Passover, Jesus was, they were eating the meal together and a time came where Jesus gets up, he takes off his outer garment, and he wraps a towel around himself to prepare himself to do the work of the servant, to wash the feet of the disciples. And it's an interesting thought. Typically, you think the roads are pretty gross. It's dusty. Animals are on the road. You're walking through the same thing. And at the table, don't think of it so much as you're pulling your chair up to sit underneath the table, but you're reclining. So your feet are probably in somebody else's face. Kind of gross, right? Nobody washed their feet that night. Typically, the servant's going to do it before they come into the house and it gets done. But we've seen many examples of, of where the disciples thought of themselves throughout Scripture, through the Gospels. They hadn't learned this process of servitude yet. Instead of asking who would serve, they would always ask Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to get a chance to sit at your right hand? Who's going to be with you when, when you are ruling and reigning? And I, who can sit at your right hand? They hadn't learned this yet. So Jesus, instead dresses himself, and he does it willingly. He's not muttering under his breath. He's not going, you have no idea what I'm about to do for you, and you can't even wash my feet. Instead, he picks up the towel, he fills the bowl, and he goes around to each one of them, and he washes their feet. Just before that, 
it said that God gave him, filled him with all power and all authority. And then Jesus washed their feet. What would you do with all power and all authority? Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. So we can choose life by listening to his voice, reading his word. Learn from the examples that are given to us in the word, apply the knowledge and the wisdom from it, and then we can learn what to do and what not to do. And avoid a lot of grievances and a lot of scars. Second point about scripture, written to encourage and produce endurance. The statement is echoed as he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He wrote, as, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So we need to be encouraged. This writing is for us to be encouraged. Remember what Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. I need encouragement. It's going to be hard. But what Jesus then said was take heart because I have overcome the world. So we require endurance to make it through this. All scripture was written for us to be encouraged and reminded of the endurance that we need. It's there to constantly recalibrate our perspective. It will encourage and equip you to do what God has called you to do. Third point of scripture is to give and sustain hope. Now, this takes some thought process, but think about it. Think about God's initiative in this. Think about God knowing what we need and everything that has been written in scripture and that he has put it there for our hope. That says something about how frequently we should turn to the Bible. Not just a five-minute devotional in the morning, but every aspect of life, God has given us hope through his scriptures. And we have such amazing access to the wisdom and the knowledge of God to learn more about his character, to learn more about his heart and his purposes, and yet we can so often settle for so much less for that five-minute distraction as we're scrolling through our phones and we pull up the Bible app for the verse of the day. That's great. That's awesome. But man, we are missing so much if we're neglecting this. Read this book. It'll change your life. That's as simple as that. Memorize it. Take counsel from it. Turn to it for instruction, for encouragement, for endurance and hope that God offers us through this book. Because it provides hope for two different things. When, one, when, when things are going good, right? It's very easy when things are going good to have a tendency to think, wow, I'm starting to hope in the things of this world because I'm filled with the blessings that I have right now and I'm gaining confidence in the, the areas of life that are going well. But scripture reminds us not to place our faith in those things, to come back, to bring it back to the word. Those are blessings, they come from God. That's great. But remember to keep it grounded in the word. It also provides us hope for the opposite end of the spectrum. In those times of suffering, when things go wrong, when life gets hard, those times that we're tempted to think that God is distant, that he doesn't care about your pain, he's not really in control, 
We need scripture to ground us. Otherwise, we can be so easily entangled by the things of the world. And then we're conformed to it. But if we give ourselves to the word of God, he sustains us. And he renews us through it and he transforms us as he offers us unshakable hope. So where's Paul going with this? Rabbit trail? No. I don't think so. Verse 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This brings us to our fourth point. What is the purpose of unity? So simple. To glorify God. Easy. On paper. But this is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for this church. That he would grant us to live in such harmony together that we would with one voice glorify God. We serve the God of endurance. We serve the God of encouragement, and I praise him for that. He's not the God of impatience. He's not the God of disappointment. He is so patient with us. I don't want to have to tell you how patient he is with me. It broke my heart again, remembering what the Lord has dealt with in my life over the past 33 years. How patient he is with me. And he disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness, not because he's waiting to mess you up and strike you down with a bolt of lightning or crack his whip on you. He disciplines us for our good. If you've been thinking that way, that's a messed up theology. That's not scripture and that's not Jesus. He's working in our lives and taking us to a destination that is so much more about the process rather than just the destination of a place. It's not just about getting to heaven. It's about his sanctifying work through us. That each of us would look more and more like the image of Christ every day through his work. So there is hope for our unity in the church. Not just personally for us, but as a body. Because it's his church after all. That's the type of unity that Jesus was praying about before his betrayal. He said that they may be one even as we are one. Talking to God the Father. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So even in the context of the Roman church, the Gentiles and the Jews that were having these issues and conflicts with each other, unity in that church. Verse 7 through 9, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to sow God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So what he's saying here is Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah, a servant to the circumcised, in order to fulfill all of God's promises to his people from the past. And at the same time, to fulfill all of the promises to the Gentiles, you and me, non-Jews, in this time. He's transitioning back to this message of unity from the church with the same focus on Scripture to make his point that God has intended this kind of unity from the beginning. This was his plan. He uses four more verses from the Old Testament, one after another, that highlight the call of unity between the Jew and the Gentile together in the worship of the Lord. Verse 9 through 12, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the, all the peoples extol him. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. As it is written, and again, and again, and again. Paul's filling his scripture with scripture. Jesus was the bridge between the cultural clash between the former Jew and the Gentile. And now see them fulfilling this prophecy within the worship together of the church of God. So all these point to the fact that God has had a plan from the beginning and that he's faithful to complete it. And we can be encouraged by the scripture and trust that he is working out his unity in the church. Us too, today. Back in chapter 9, Paul said, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And this is true for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. This is God's reminder that he's planned this kind of unity from long before there were ever arguments about food or drink or days of worship or personal convictions and all of that. Stay focused on the big picture. It's for God's glory. We have to put off the old ways and put on the new self in Christ. Finally, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And this is our fifth point in conclusion, in hope. And how we need to hear this today. Turn on the news. Wars, pandemics, natural disasters, national dissension, cultural division, increased morality and depravity, rampant fear. Big things, catastrophic things, chaos, brokenness. And yet in the middle of all of that, our God is still the God of hope. He's still ruling and he's reigning on the throne right now. In the midst of all of this, he sees through it all and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus promised that these things would come as the last days draw near. So we shouldn't be surprised. But when we look around, the world is looking to solve all of these problems and crises and conflicts. They're looking to world leaders and governments and scientists and technology and political powers and economic recovery. Look around. The world is without hope. And yet God placed the church and you and I in a time like this and a place like this for a reason. That we might be the light in that dark. That we would be unified in Christ to then go out into that world and take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work at the cross and bring it out to them. To offer hope. That the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Where do you find hope if you're not a believer? I think we've all been there. There is none. It's always a letdown. None of it will be what Christ can be for us. And notice it says that our lives can be filled with all hope and joy and peace. And I underline this, in believing. Notice it does not say in experience. It does not say in feeling or in circumstance. Because the truth is that not everything is going to work out. We're going to lose jobs. People are going to get sick. Life happens. And Jesus promised it. He actually promised that we would have trouble in this world. So determine beforehand that you're going to face difficulty. That's life in a fallen world as it's subject to sin. But the thing that we're supposed to hope in 
The God that we believe in, that we can take heart in, that we can find joy and peace is the fact that he actually overcomes the world. The world and its desires will pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Amen. And Paul knew it better than most. Think about this. He was in prison countless times, shipwrecked, what, like three times, spent an entire day at night adrift at sea. He spent nights hungry and out in the cold, sleepless nights, got 39 lashes five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned basically to death, and eventually beheaded. But he still had hope. What am I missing? In light of all of that, after all the things that he'd been through, he still writes things like, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And knowing that he'd reached the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That is supernatural, Holy Spirit kind of hope. I want that. What it does is it stems from a real true relationship with the Lord. And that's what we've been seeing as we've gone through this experiencing God uh, study in our Ohana groups. It's real, true hope regardless of the circumstances. And I want to ask Tyler and the guys to come on up. And there is hope in Jesus Christ. To rescue and restore and redeem you to himself. To save us from ourselves. So remember God's faithfulness. He's calling us to unity. And if he can unify the Jews and the Gentiles by the power of his Holy Spirit, he can certainly unify us in our squabbles. He can certainly unite us in our difficulties with one another. Take scripture to heart. Let it encourage you and give you hope to bear with one another's weaknesses and to build up one another in the Lord. And let the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope so that you can then go into the world and be a light in this darkness. And give the world a reason for the hope that you have. And so I want to ask you guys. In the mundane, in the everyday, in the patterns that we have, in the ruts that we get stuck in. Who needs a fresh filling of God's spirit today? To actually experience joy and hope and peace of our God. And if that's you this morning, I just want to ask you to stand where you are. If you need a fresh feeling of the Lord's Spirit, if you need an encouragement today, because we're going to do something very easy, very simple, and it's biblical. If that's you, just stand. Right now, I ask you to do it, and we're going to pray for you. 